Great to see you this morning. Thank you for being here. We're so grateful for the opportunity to be together today. We appreciate those of you who are visiting. As always, we invite you to come back. We'd love to have you here as part of our church family. But we are so grateful that you've chosen to be here today. What a beautiful day. The opportunity to be together to worship God in spirit and in truth. I do want to say thank you to Jared for preaching last week. It was a privilege for me to sit, to listen to him, and I appreciate so much his knowledge. The opportunity that I have to work with him side by side on a daily basis. And uh, he has been a great blessing to my life and thankful to God for him. And I appreciate so much the opportunity to be here today to preach God's Word. We're going to be looking at John chapter 3 in our study today. John chapter 3, we're going to be talking about the golden text of the Bible. I would imagine that if there were one verse that is universally known by people around the globe, it would be John 3.16. There's a lot of great truths contained in that one verse. What I want to do today is look at John chapter 3 for a moment or two and talk about the golden text of the Bible. And there's some reasons why John 3.16 is golden. And so as we look at this particular passage of Scripture, we're going to be focusing our minds specifically on verses 14 through 17. And as you explore this verse or these verses with me today, I want you to think about how golden this text is from the vantage point of God and mankind. That would be us. I want to begin by first of all talking about the love of God. John 3, 16, John chapter 3, capitalizes on the love of God. Now, what about the scope of God's love? There are really two thoughts that come to mind here. Number one, God's love for us is universal, isn't it? And not just universal, but it is undeniable. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, here's what John had to say about God. God is love. There are a lot of characteristics that I think help us to come to appreciate the nature of God. But one of the great characteristics that underscores His character, His nature, is His divine love, isn't it? And so in John chapter 3, verse 16, it was Jesus who said, For God so loved, listen to Him, the world. God loves the world. That is, He loves humanity, doesn't He? Let me ask you a question. Why does God love you? Let me ask you a second question. Why should God love you? You ever thought about that? For the last few weeks, I've been asking myself, why does God love me? Is there something that I have that God needs? You know, in Psalm 50, the psalmist said, talking about the nature of God, he said, the cattle on a thousand hills are his. And you remember in that same context, he said, if I were hungry, I would not tell you. There is nothing that God needs from me. Matter of fact, he is the giver of all life, breath, and all things. Everything that we enjoy in the human life comes from the hand of God, doesn't it? He is our benefactor. He's the one that has blessed us richly. The air that we breathe, 
the food that we eat, the water that we drink, all of that stems from the loving God of heaven and earth. So you think about why. Why would God love me? Is there anything He needs from me? Well, the answer would be no. Well, is there something that I have done that put, puts God in debt to me? In other words, would it be the case that God owes me His love? Well, again, the answer would be no. God owes me nothing, does He? True? Someone said not long ago, I listened to a quotation by a fella, as he talked about the love of God, and as he described God's love for us, he said God doesn't want to change us so that He might love us, but rather God loves us so that He might change us. Think about that. In light of what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 5, verse 6, when we were yet without strength, Christ died for the ungodly. In Romans chapter 3, Paul makes the case, there's none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We stand condemned because of sin. And yet God willingly demonstrated His love, mercy, and grace toward us as members of the human family. So the scope of God's love, the fact that that love is universal and undeniable. Paul would write in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, but God commends His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What about the sacrifice of God's love? And we're talking about the love of God, that God is a being of love. You remember John wrote in 1 John chapter 4, verse 19, we love Him because He first loved us. In this was manifested the love of God toward us. God sent His only begotten Son into the world that through Him we might have everlasting life. So Jesus said in John chapter 3, in verse 16, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. There are people today that will ask for proof when it comes to the love of God. Can I prove to you that God loves you? I can. You know how I can prove it? Go to Calvary. If you want to know something about the love of God for you, go to Calvary. In Luke 23, when Luke wrote about the crucifixion of Christ, he said, when they were come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified Him. God the Father literally gave His only begotten Son, the only one of His kind, so that He might redeem us. And so, with regard to the sacrifice of God's love, everything you need to know about the love of God is evidenced at Calvary, isn't it? Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8, verse 32, God spared not His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all freely. So there's something to be said about the finished work of Christ on Calvary. God has demonstrated His interest in us as human beings, hasn't He? 
We're the crown of His creation. Not only is God interested in us, but He has invested heavily in us. Again, go back to Calvary. And you think about the fact that sin is what separates man from God. And yet, Jesus willingly came to earth to suffer, bleed, and die for us. Wasn't it Jesus who said, Greater love has no man than this? Then a man laid down his life for his friends? So the proof and the power of God's love. Listen to what Jesus said in John chapter 12. And I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men unto myself. When Jesus was elevated on Golgotha, Calvary, God was saying to the human family, this is my beloved son, and it is through him that salvation is a reality. So the love of God in scope, universal, undeniable, the sacrifice of God's love, God proved his love for us at Calvary. Now, those of us who are parents, we have children. They are bone of our bones and flesh of our flesh, and we love them, don't we? Why do we love them? Well, there's something called unconditional love. And we love them, and because of that, we're willing to make great sacrifices on their behalf. Well, God loves us as members of the human family. We are God's children, and because of that, He made a great sacrifice. In 1 John chapter 3, John talked about the great love of God, and as a result of that love, we have been called the children of God, the sons of God. There's a second thing I want you to see in our study. First, we think about the love of God, but then secondly, the fact that we have been liberated by God. Liberty speaks of freedom, doesn't it? We are blessed to live in a country that enjoys freedom in many, in many respects. We're blessed to be able to come together on the first day of the week to worship God. We can do so publicly without fear of being persecuted, harassed, imprisoned, put to death. When Jesus went to Calvary, He opened the door for us to be liberated from sin, to enjoy freedom. Jesus talked about that freedom in John chapter 8. You remember? When Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. Well, what about that truth? Well, I know what Paul said. God desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. God has invested in you. He's interested in you. He wants you to be saved, doesn't He? So what about God's plan of salvation? Go back to verse 14. In verse 14, Jesus, in His conversation with Nicodemus, Nicodemus was a ruler among the Jewish people. He was a Pharisee. He was identified by Jesus as a teacher of Israel, a man of great esteem. Many people, no doubt, recognized his greatness in the law of God, his understanding of the law of God. And so in verse 14, Jesus said, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. So first, 
the Lord Jesus talks about the serpent being lifted up. Now, some might say, you know, that's a strange reference, isn't it? What does a serpent have to do with the Son of Man being lifted up? Well, it became a type of salvation. So you go back to Numbers chapter 21. You remember the children of Israel. They began to murmur and complain. And they questioned Moses why God had delivered them out of Egyptian bondage. They talked about how they loathed the bread and water that God had bountifully blessed them with. So here's what God did, sent fiery serpents among them. And Moses, in recording that incident, in Numbers 21 said that those fiery serpents bit the people and many of the children of Israel died. Well, they began to plead with Moses. Matter of fact, they acknowledged their sin. They pleaded for deliverance. And so here's what God said. God said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to build or to make a serpent of brass, a fiery serpent, and put that serpent on a pole. And then when someone is bitten, they can look at that fiery serpent on the pole and live. Well, that became a type of the salvation that we enjoy in Christ. So what do you have in Numbers chapter 21? You have a manifestation of God's grace, don't you? God didn't owe those people anything. Matter of fact, they had murmured and complained about the goodness of God. God had blessed them, had cared for them, and yet they turned their nose up at it. So when they cried out to Moses, God said, all right, I'll save you, but here's how I'm going to save you. Set forth divine law. Here's what Moses was to do to take that fiery serpent, put it on a pole, and then when those who were bitten looked at that serpent of brass, Moses said they would live. So you have faith coupled with what? Obedience. Wasn't enough to just say, well, I believe that that serpent of brass can save. No, Moses said you've got to look at that serpent of brass and then you'll live. So Jesus said, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. That was a type of salvation. Even so, listen to him, must the Son of Man be lifted up. Well, why was Jesus lifted up for sin? Jesus willingly went to the cross so that he might save us from sin. That's what the angel of God said to Joseph in a dream recorded by Matthew in chapter 1 of his gospel narrative. So, Jesus said, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. This has to do with God's redemptive plan. And to understand that that plan was in place before He ever laid the foundation of the earth. John would say, speaking of Jesus, that He was the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Peter said He was verily foreordained before the world began, but was manifest in these last times for us. Remember what Paul said in Galatians 4, 4? That Jesus was, when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem them that were under the law. There it is, God's redemptive plan. And that plan 
found its fulfillment in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So this is God's plan of redemption. Matter of fact, there is no other plan. There is no other way but to be saved through Jesus. That's why Jesus said in John 14, I'm the way, the truth, the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. So I think about the plan of salvation, but then the person of salvation. That'd be Jesus. You see, the Lord said, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Did you know that when Jesus went to Calvary and died in our stead, He did so voluntarily? Jesus died for us, not because He was coerced, not because He was pressured into dying on our behalf. No, Jesus was willing to step up, answer the call of God, so that we might enjoy redemption. The Hebrew writer said, quoting the psalmist in Psalm 40, he said, it's written of me in the volume of your book. I come, O Lord, to do your will. What was that will? Remember what Jesus said in the shadow of the cross? That intercessory prayer on behalf of the human family? When Jesus said in the long ago, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you've given me to do. What was that work? It was salvation, wasn't it? So what we have to understand is that Jesus voluntarily laid down His life for us. In John chapter 10, when Jesus identified Himself as the Good Shepherd who gives His life for the sheep, He said, I have power to lay it down, I have power to take it again. So when we talk about the love of God, the love of Christ, to understand that Jesus willingly laid aside the glory that He enjoyed with the Father from time eternal to take upon Himself human flesh to come and die for us. What does that say about not just the voluntary death of Jesus, but His vicarious death? He stepped in my place, didn't He? Stepped in your place? Didn't the Apostle Paul say, Him who knew no sin, He became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. You want to talk about the love of God and the golden text of the Bible? Listen, this verse is rich, rich with meaning. Because encapsulated in this one verse or in this context, what Jesus is saying is that God loves us. And not only does God love us, but He's saying, I love you. Again, greater love has no man than this, than to lay down his life for his friends. There is a third, I think, very important point to draw from John chapter 3. And that is the life that we enjoy in God and with God. So what about this life? Well, Jesus identifies for us, number one, the place of salvation. The place of salvation is Christ, isn't it? You remember what, remember what Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10? That salvation is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. 
So what about being in Christ? Jesus said that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. In verse 17 He said, For God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world. Well, why was that? The world was under condemnation. The world stood condemned because of sin. All of those Old Testament sacrifices beginning in the period of the patriarchs, running through the Mosaic dispensation, all pointed in the same direction, the coming of Jesus and His sacrificial blood and the redeeming power of that blood. So to be in Christ is to be in a special place. Well, how do I know that? Listen to what Paul said in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. You know, there are a lot of folks in our world today, a lot of folks in our country, they sit as we speak on death row. They've been condemned by the courts of our land. And if justice is ultimately carried out, they will pay the ultimate price for their crime. They'll die. They'll be put to death. Not long ago, there was a gentleman put to death in the city of Nashville. In the early 90s, he killed his girlfriend, set her automobile on fire, set her on fire. When she arrived at the emergency room in Chattanooga, Tennessee, the personnel in the emergency room said they had never seen a person as badly burned as she was. Now, the man that committed that crime had been her boyfriend, her partner for some years. For almost 30 years, he sat on death row. But they executed him about two years ago in December. There are a lot of folks that live with the thought they're going to be executed. They're condemned. What Paul is saying in Romans chapter 8 is we stood condemned to die. We were condemned. But to those who are in Christ, he said, there's no condemnation. Not only do we escape the condemnation associated with sin, but the consequences of sin. Well, what about those consequences? You remember what Ezekiel said, the soul that sins, it shall surely die. Talking about spiritual death. And yet, why did Jesus come to earth? So that we might escape the condemnation of sin and the consequences of sin. That whosoever believes in Him, and that word belief there is a generic term, and it embraces and obedient faith. That's why you go back to Numbers chapter 21. Those people demonstrated an obedient faith. Well, those who enjoy the blessings of salvation demonstrate what? An obedient faith. You remember Jesus in His conversation with Nicodemus talked about a new birth. Well, what's so important about the new birth? The new birth puts us in Christ and in the kingdom of Christ. That's why Jesus said, except a man be born again, he can't see the kingdom of heaven. Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. 
So when Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter said, Seeing you have purified your souls and obeying the truth of the Spirit, under unfeigned or genuine love of the brethren, see that you love one another with a pure heart fervently, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the Word of God which lives and abides forever. So when I obey the gospel, what I enjoy? The purification of sin. My sins are washed away. Well, what then is it that washes away my sins? The blood of Jesus. And so I can enjoy eternal life. Now I think about the place of eternal life is Jesus in Christ. The promise of eternal life set forth by the Lord in John chapter 3. Again, remember what the Lord said? God didn't send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. God wants you to be saved. Please don't leave here today thinking that God is uninterested in your spiritual life. That God doesn't really care about you as a human being. Don't leave here today thinking that because I have lived a life of sin, and because my life has fallen miserably short of the glory of Almighty God, He doesn't care about me. That's not the case. No, Jesus came and died so that you might live. So that you might have everlasting life. So what about our confidence in Christ? Can we not enjoy the promises of God and stand confident in our relationship to God? Jesus said, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. When you obey the gospel of Christ, Paul said, We live in hope of life eternal, which God, who cannot lie, promised before the world began. 1 John chapter 5, verse 11. This is the record that God has given to us eternal life. Listen to him. And this life is in His Son. When you're in Christ, you're numbered among the saved. And as a result of that, you enjoy the benefits and the blessings of living with the expectation of one day having a home in heaven. That might be the case that you're here today. And you don't have eternal life. You've got a lot of blessings. God's been good to you. God has blessed you immeasurably, physically, and materially. That's a wonderful thing. But the true riches of life are in Christ. So when you find yourself in Christ, you can have confidence knowing that you have eternal life. John said, he who has a son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things I've written to you that believe in the name of the Son of God, listen to him, that you may know that you have eternal life. Can I know? Yes, I can. Matter of fact, not only can I know it, I can prove it. By what? This book right here, it's called a record. These are the papers that certify that I belong to God. And because I belong to God, I live in hope of life eternal. And that's not hope so, think so, maybe so. Not that kind of hope. But rather, this is the kind of hope that is grounded in the faith of the Son of God and grounded in the faith that this book is reliable. Do you remember what Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 1? I know whom I believed and am persuaded that he's able to keep that which I have committed unto him 
against that day. Let me tell you, that's assurance. That's confidence, isn't it? What about the crown? When it's all said and done, when it's all said and done we stand before God one day. And as we stand before the Son of God, as we bow in His presence, acknowledging that He is Jesus Christ to the glory of God, wouldn't it be a great thing to hear Him say to us, well done, good and faithful servant? Didn't the Apostle Paul say that there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give to me, but not to me only? He embraces all of us, but to all who've loved disappearing. The golden text of the Bible is golden. I imagine that most of us learned this verse probably in the early years of our life. We can quote it, we believe it, but listen, we need to have confidence that what the Lord has promised, He'll bring to pass. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, I hope that you understand something about the love of God and the love that God has for you as a human being and that God wants you to be saved through the knowledge of His will. You know, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. So, to demonstrate an active, operative, obedient faith. When we obey the gospel of Jesus Christ, number one, we enjoy the blessings of His blood. And you remember what Paul said, in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of His grace. If you're in, if you're in Christ Jesus and your sins have been washed away, you can praise God for the riches of His grace. And then he'll add you to his body, which is called the church, in Colossians 1.18. Then to be faithful until death, the promise being that one day you'll stand before him. He'll own you, he'll crown you, eternal life will be yours. Think about where you are in life right now. And ask yourself this. All the things that you have going in your life right now, what will they mean to you a hundred years from now? I suspect that most of us, if not all of us, a hundred years from now, we'll be in eternity, won't we? Might be that one of our infants, I did a funeral service yesterday for a lady that passed away at the age of 101. Well, she lived a good life. She was a faithful child of God. A hundred and one years. That's a great run, isn't it? but it ended in death. But even though the physical body may die, the soul is alive and well. Here's what Paul said, to live is Christ, to die is gain. I hope that you will live so that one day you can gain that home in heaven. If you're unfaithful to this cause, please come home as we stand and sing.